Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. Bitter cold. Go ahead and put that one up. A soldier remains to guard this tomb. They do it without expression on their face or change in the gait of their step. But that guarding of the tomb, it almost all came to an end on September 18th, 2003, where this unbroken streak was almost broken. At that time, Hurricane Isabel was bearing down on our capital. 60-plus mile-an-hour winds. Terrible weather. And for the first time in history, the soldier guarding that tomb was given permission to leave his post. That night, it was Sergeant First Class Frederick Gary that was on duty. Even though he was given permission to leave the tomb during the hurricane, he chose to stay and guard it. That night, 24 trees came down around the tomb. One of those trees landed only yards away from Sergeant Gary as he paced back and forth in front there. And then they were asked, they asked him, why didn't you leave? Why didn't you try to seek cover to, to save your life? And this was his answer. He says, I wanted to be faithful. I didn't want the unbroken streak to end. I wanted to be faithful all the way to the end. Well, this morning we're continuing in our study of 2 Timothy. Let me tell you a bit about this book. 2 Timothy is the last letter that, Timothy, that Paul wrote in our Bible. Paul had been arrested at this point. He was in the Mamertine prison in, in Rome. He had already been convicted. Soon his head would be chopped off by, by Nero. And as he writes this letter to Timothy, he's essentially passing the baton of church leadership from himself to this young man named Timothy that would become the next generation leader when Paul was gone. Paul and Timothy knew each other well. Timothy had traveled with Paul for approximately 15 years. And the focus of this letter is Paul telling Timothy, I've tried to be faithful to the end of my life, let me tell you what it's going to take for you to be faithful to the end of your life when it comes to following Jesus. And this morning, uh, Paul is going to focus on one particular area of what it means to be faithful to the end. And that is, Timothy, you have to guard the gospel. No matter what hurricanes come your way, no matter what difficulties are around you, no matter how much oppression is after you, you must guard that gospel message with greater fidelity than even the soldiers guard the, unknown, the tomb of the unknown soldier itself. Faithful guarding the gospel to the end. That's what it takes to live faithful to the end for Jesus. The text we're going to be looking at today is 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 9 through 18. So I'd ask you to take out your Bibles and uh, follow along with me. I don't care if you use a phone Bible or a paper Bible, it doesn't matter. What I do want you to do, though, is stand out of reverence for the Word of God. And if you have a Bible in your hand, please follow along with your eyes in your copy of God's Word as I read verses 9 to 18 of that first chapter. Paul writes, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which has now been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. 
Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposits entrusted to you. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my change. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. That ends the reading of God's word. You can be seated. The outline we're going to follow this morning as we work our way through the text is really rather simple. The first thing the text tells us is we must know the gospel. Second thing, it tells us we must share the gospel. Third, we must be willing to suffer for the gospel. And finally, we must guard the gospel. So let's go ahead and begin and work our way through. Point one, I must know the gospel. We get this out of verses 9 and 10. It says, Who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. If you were with us last week, you know we actually covered these verses in our previous message in this text. But when I covered them at the end of the sermon last week, we went through them rather quickly. But these verses, I felt it was good to put the car in reverse, go back and cover them again, because they encapsulate what the gospel message is. And if we're going to be told to make sure we guard the gospel, we better make sure we understand what we are actually going to guard. So that's why we're covering them again. Let's work our way through this. Here's the first part of the gospel message we must know. God saved me. We get that from this little verse where it says, Who saved us? The gospel message is that God is the one who saved us. We didn't save ourselves. This reminds me in the Old Testament of the ancient Israelites. You remember how they were in slavery in Egypt? And there was nothing they could do to get themselves out of slavery and certain death in Egypt. And they were being ground to death by the Egyptians. Who saved them? God. God is the one who saved them. God sent a deliverer to save them. That deliverer's name was, was Moses. And it was God who literally took them out of Egypt and saved them from certain death. Well, nothing has changed. We're in slavery too. We're not in slavery to the Egyptians, but we're in slavery to sin. And that slavery to sin is grinding us into certain death, worse than just earthly death. It is grinding us into eternal death and eternal condemnation, and there is nothing we can do to save ourselves. But the good news is that God saved us when we couldn't save ourselves. That's the gospel. We can't save ourselves, so God saved us. Reminds me of the story of Jonah. Remember that story in the Old Testament where Jonah was sent to Nineveh and he didn't go, and so he ended up getting thrown overboard and he was swallowed by a great fish. And then the book of Jonah, it records his prayer in the great fish. And one line in his prayer is this, which I think is, is pretty cool. He says this, salvation belongs to the Lord. That's pretty apropos. When you're in the belly of a big fish underwater with no way to get out and there's no lights inside. Like, uh, I think if I, the only person who's going to be able to save me right now is God himself. I can't save myself. But isn't that what God did? He answered Jonah's prayer. The book of Jonah tells us the fish vomited Jonah up on dry land, and he survived. God saved him. 
That's what the gospel is. God saves us. But it's not just that God saved us. It's also that God changed me. Where it says here, he called us to a holy calling. Now, what is a holy calling? God didn't just have has the power to save us, but God has the power to actually change us. If you look in this, there's actually the word called used twice. He called us to a holy calling. And we hear calling, and what comes to mind in our mind is something called invitational calling. You know, like Elijah, I call Elijah up. Elijah, hey, do you, you want to come over to my house for dinner? And Elijah says, well, I don't know. I'm busy. I've got things going on. You know, he may come. He may not come. And that would be an invitational call. But that's not what's being talked about here. This is what's called by theologians an effectual call. Like when God calls you, you come. You cannot resist his invitation. So when God saves us, what he does is he calls us to a holy life. He changes our very life. You can't resist it. He works in you to change you. You used to delight in sin. Now you can no longer stand sin. One of my favorite verses with regard to this is 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. You ever met somebody who's a new Christian? And the orientation of their life is completely different? They don't even feel like the same person because God has changed the orientation of their heart. They hated Jesus, now they love Jesus. That is what God does for us. He saves us, and the gospel is that he changes us. Next, we see that God saved me by his grace. These are the words we find here that point that out. He saved us not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. None of us deserve to be saved by God. But we don't deserve it. God, through his own purposes and own grace, chose to save us. Now what does it mean to be saved by your own pur his purposes? It means we don't know why. We don't know what God's purposes are, but he chose to save some of us. What does it mean to be saved by his grace? Well, one thing is for sure. We don't deserve to be saved. We don't deserve it at all. Some people think that God saved them because they are better than others. Nope. Absolutely not true. Other people think that God looked down the corridors of time and realized that they would be better people at the end of the day than other people, and that's why he saved them. Absolutely not true. The only reason that God chose to save us and God chose to change us are his own purposes that we'll never understand and his own grace that we do not deserve. So God saved us is the gospel. God changed us is the gospel. God did it all by his grace is the gospel. The next point is God chose me before I chose him. That's a really strange one, but it's true. Paul says here, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. God saved us in Christ Jesus before we could even repent of our sin. He chose to save us from our sin. Now some people say, well, you know, don't I get some credit in this? You know, I heard the gospel message. I repented of my sin. I chose Jesus. So isn't there some way that I saved myself from my sin? But this verse tells us that the only way that you repented of your sin and trust in Jesus to forgive you of your sin is because God actually chose you first in eternity past. He chose to put you and Jesus Christ together so you would be able to repent of your sin and trust in Jesus to forgive you of your sin. This is all God's amazing grace. We don't deserve any of this. And if you think his saving grace in eternity past is amazing. 
where he chose you before you could choose him, so that in space and time now we would choose him, what gets even better is eternity future. Look what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God's saving grace and his changing grace for us now are amazing. But for all of eternity, all God is going to do is continue to expand and intensify even more grace to you and me through Jesus Christ. Eternity with Jesus just continually gets better. It doesn't stay the same. That's amazing grace. The amazing grace of God. Now, God the Father, He saved me by Jesus, His Son. We see this where it says, which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus. So before there was time, God chose to save us by putting us together with His Son. That's what the text said. But then in the fullness of time, God sent His Son who achieved the Father's purpose and mission, that Jesus took on human flesh that Jesus died on the cross in our place for our sin. Jesus rose from the grave into newness of life. All of God's good plans for us from eternity past were planned through Jesus and they've been accomplished by Jesus in this life. The next part of the gospel is this. God activated my salvation when I heard the gospel message. We see this where Paul says next, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. God chose to put us together with Jesus before there was time. He chose to save us in eternity past. He accomplished our salvation in the fullness of time by having Jesus come and die for us. But then he activated that salvation in our lives in a point in time by hearing the gospel message about what God had done for us through Jesus Christ. It's the good news of Jesus that activates what has always been God's plan to save us. So let me summarize some of these points that Paul has articulated here about what the gospel is. If you have your outlines, you'll see I put these right down for you because I want you to have these notes when you leave. The gospel is that we are saved by God's grace alone, by faith alone. Religions of the world are very different. Religions of the world will tell you you are saved by what you do. The Bible says the only way we can be saved is not by trusting in what we do, but by trusting in what God has done that we cannot do. Take Islam. and They'll tell you to trust in the five pillars. You do these five things and you can be saved. Take Buddhism. They have a sevenfold path. Do these seven things and you'll be saved. Hinduism, well, we just lost track of the number of things you have to do for that. But it's a lot. But the Bible says, no, you cannot save yourself. The good news of the gospel is God saved us all by his grace. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that nobody may boast. So the gospel is we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone. But the next thing is this. We are saved by faith in Jesus alone. Today, that's not very popular. Today, what is popular is to say Jesus is just one of many ways to God. Not that Jesus is the exclusive way to be made 
right with God. In fact, if you say that Jesus is the exclusive way to be made right with God, the gospel becomes very offensive. But isn't that what Paul has said? That it was an eternity past, God chose to put us together with his son. That was the plan of how he would save some of us. And that it is in, activated in time, he sent his son to accomplish that salvation. And then at a purpose in time in our lives, he brought all that to fruition by us hearing the gospel, us responding to the gospel, and then being saved by the gospel. There is no other way to be saved. There is no other way to be made right with God other than Jesus. That is the gospel message. Look how Jesus said it. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So that is the gospel that we must know. But as Paul continues, he says, that is the gospel that I must share. I must share the gospel. We get this in verse 11. He says, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher. It's not just that uh, God chose in eternity past that he would save us by Jesus, but God also chose in eternity past how that our salvation would be activated by Jesus. And that is by the hearing of the gospel message about Jesus Christ. Let me explain it to you this way. There is no other way for someone to be saved in this life other than hearing a verbal proclamation of God's saving message about what he has done for us through Jesus. No other way. Some of you may work on an assembly line and you're a Christian and you're working by a guy who's not a Christian and you're hoping that maybe if you work next to him for 20 years that by osmosis somehow he'll get the gospel in his head. I guarantee you he won't. You may have a good witness, you may have a good testimony, but until someone hears the message that we began with in the front of this, this sermon, they cannot be saved. They need to know the only way to be made right with God is by grace alone, through faith alone, by Jesus alone. That's the gospel. Now, Paul says that we have to share this gospel. Then he also says, I was appointed a teacher and an apostle, or excuse me, a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of this gospel. I have to communicate it. Well, let me explain what these terms are. Let's start with apostle. I put a definition in your outline for you. Apostles were chosen by God to be the foundation of the church and to share the gospel with the world. Originally, Jesus chose 12 men to be his apostles. He poured his life into them. And then he sent them out with the Great Commission to share the gospel message around the world. We know Paul was also an apostle. He came a little bit later. Remember in Acts chapter 9 and the Damascus Road, Jesus visited Paul. Jesus commissioned Paul. So he got sort of being a, a later edition of an apostle. But they were to carry the, this apostolic message. Now you may ask yourself, well how do we know we're even following the message of the apostles? I mean that was 2,000 years ago. How do we know what the church says today is faithful and true? <laughs> Easy answer. You heard of your Bible, like the New Testament? That's the point of the New Testament. Every New Testament book was either written by an apostle or by someone who is a close associate of an apostle so we can know what the apostles taught. That's why we have the, the New Testament in our Bible. So the apostles served a foundational role for the church, which is what we find in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. It says, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. Let's look at another of these words. We've seen what the apostles were, the foundational stones of the church, sharing the gospel. What about preaching or preachers? Preaching means the public sharing of news. Abstract yourself out of our cable and internet world. Put yourself in the ancient world where you didn't turn on Fox News or didn't turn on CNN to find out what was happening. 
the way they got their information is a herald came into the public square and that herald would proclaim the news of the day publicly for people to hear. And they were the preachers of the day. Well, the interesting part, uh, we hear the gospel is often called the good news. What they were to do is... <laughs> Christians or apostles here in this case were to go into the public squares and not proclaim the bad news of the day, but the good news of the day of what God had done for us through Jesus Christ. Now you may put that next to the other word, which is teaching, because Paul was appointed as a preacher to proclaim the good news of Jesus, but also as a teacher. And here's where the difference between the two comes in. Teaching means explaining the implications of the information. So the preachers present the good news. Teachers apply the good news. What does this mean for our life? And obviously there's some ebb and flow between these two. Because while Paul would sometimes present the good news of Jesus, right after that he then applied the good news of Jesus. So preachers and teachers go together. And what is he saying to Timothy? Just as I was appointed to share this gospel message, to be a preacher and a teacher of the gospel message, Timothy, that's what you need to do as well. And he says that to us. Today, we are to know the gospel, and we are to share the gospel. Because the only way that anyone can be saved, let me say this again, is by hearing a verbal proclamation of the gospel. Some of you may say, well, what about like reading a pamphlet uh, for spiritual laws? Well, that's a verbal proclamation of the gospel. It's just written down. Same thing. And I also know some of you will sit there and say, well, I know that I have to share the gospel, but quite honestly, I don't feel adequate to share the gospel. I'm afraid I'm going to share it wrong. I'm just really uncomfortable doing it. And I really wouldn't be too good at teaching what the implications are of the gospel, I'm just too new in my faith. But there is application here for you as well. Let me back up just a wee bit to verse 8. Paul said this to Timothy, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. Testimony means sharing the evidence of how something has changed. Literally in this case, it's sharing the evidence of how Jesus has changed my life. If you feel like you can't preach and proclaim the gospel well, or teach and explain the implications of the gospel for life, one thing we can all do is share our testimony. Let me just tell you how Jesus has changed me. Let me just tell you how Jesus has changed my life. And friends, that is one of the most powerful ways to share the gospel message. True? Amen? Wake up. Okay, yes. Amen. Sharing our testimony is one of the most powerful ways. So number one, we have to know the gospel. Number two, we have to share the gospel, because it's only a verbal proclamation of this message that will change anyone. And number three, I must be willing to suffer for the gospel. In verse 12, for which, for which, which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed. If you were here with us last week, we covered suffering for the gospel uh, at length. We won't take too much time on it this morning, but we should mention something about it. Whenever we share this gospel message around people, one of two things will happen. When we tell them that we're saved by God's grace alone, by faith alone, and Jesus alone, and we invite them to trust in Christ, some people will be drawn to him. Some people will be saved by that gospel message. But other people will find that gospel message completely repulsive. And in their anger at Christ for that message, they will become angry at us. We should expect it. If you talk to your friends about Jesus... And they all of a sudden say, you're so small-minded, you're ignorant, and they insult you. That's not a bad thing. That's not an unexpected thing. That's what's supposed to happen with some people. 
I was bored one after one evening, and I was sort of flipping through YouTube. Anybody do that when they're bored? Flip through YouTube videos? Oh, yeah, you guys, amen. Well, I ended up getting on this series of videos about trains in the snow. I mean, we're in the winter, and so I got looking at trains. And they have these cool trains that have the big, massive snowblowers in the front. You guys see those? They go slow. But the one I thought is really neat are the V-plow trains. They have a long plow on the front that splits like this, and they go fast. What they do is they hit the snow on the track, and they throw it either left or right for huge distances. If you check these videos out, it's pretty impressive. And I thought, what an apt analogy for what it's like when we share the gospel message of Jesus in a crowd. Some people will either be drawn to him, some people will either be completely repulsed by him, but no one stays neutral about him. That's what happens every time when we share the gospel. Which is why when we tell people about Jesus, we should expect that there'll be some suffering that goes along with sharing about Jesus. Now why? Oh, let me just tell you, by the way, a little bit more about that. The gospel message is intentional, intended to divide people. I like the way Paul says this. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, but to others, excuse me, turn over here, a fragrance of life from life. Who is sufficient for all these things? The gospel message to some people will make them feel like we just tossed a piece of roadkill in their lap. Ew! To other people, it's sweet smell like a flower where they are drawn to it. So, the gospel always has a supernatural response to it. Let me explain to you why some people are repulsed by this message and some people are drawn to this message. There is supernatural opposition to the gospel message. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The demonic powers in this world want to do everything they can to keep you from sharing the gospel message with people who need to hear it. Because it is only when that gospel message is shared that people can respond and be saved. And if they can keep you from sharing that gospel message, people won't respond. They won't be saved. It's interesting how this works spiritually. Now, I've can speak about this from personal experience. Uh, some of you know that I've been on a number of mission trips over the years, and I found that when you go to places around the world and you get to that time in your presentation where you're going to talk about the gospel, inevitably there's distractions. There's babies crying, all of a sudden there's something that happens, and it seems like it's very difficult to have an uninterrupted gospel message. I know our Haiti team returned from Haiti last week, actually two weeks ago, but I'm sure they would tell you when they present the gospel in a place that's filled with voodoo and things like that in Haiti, they have a hard time presenting it without distraction because the spiritual forces of evil are fighting against it being shared. Also, I think it's probably wise to say that one of the reasons that we end up suffering when we share the gospel is because human pride opposes it. It says, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 14, Then your heart be lifted up, and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Heart being lifted up is referring to pride. The more prideful we become in our life, the less we look to God in our life. Isn't that true? And we like to say, we did it. We like to say, I earned it. We like to say, I'm better than others. I fixed it. I solved my drinking problem on my own. I fixed my marriage problem on my own. I earned that promotion. But what does the gospel say? You can't do anything. 
We are a complete abject failure and there's nothing we can do to save ourselves at all. The gospel means we get to the end of ourselves, put our hands up and say, I can't do it at all. The only one who can do it, who can save me from my life of sin, the only one who can change me because I'm so addicted to sin in my heart is God himself. And he has to do it through Jesus' son. So the gospel destroys human pride if it's going to be received, which is why it's often resisted. So let's see where we're at in our, in our progression. I must know the gospel. And I also must share the gospel because that's the only way that people can be saved. I also must be willing to suffer for the gospel because when I present the truth of Jesus Christ, some will be drawn to it, others will be violently opposed to it, and they will oppose us, insulting us, mocking us, and humiliating us. Prepare for it. Which brings us to our fourth point, which is this. I must stand guard, I must guard the gospel. We find this in verses 13 and 14. Paul says to Timothy, Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard that good deposit entrusted to you. What Paul is saying to Timothy and what he's saying to us and what he's saying to you is understand this, there is nothing more valuable in this world than the gospel message. Nothing else will save a life. Nothing else can change a life other than that gospel message. So guard that gospel message with your life. No matter how much opposition you face. No matter how much pressure you face. No matter how many times people tell you to make that gospel message more acceptable and more palatable and adjust it, do not change it at all. Because when you change the gospel message, you remove the power of the gospel message and people are not saved. Now let's break apart some of these things that Paul said. He said, follow the pattern of the sound words. Well, what does he mean by sound words? It's interesting. The idea of sound words, the word sound means healthy. It means whole. It is used in the gospels to describe people after Jesus healed them. People were sick, they were debilitated, they were suffering. And Jesus comes along, and either by a touch or by a word, he makes them healthy, he makes them whole. What Paul is saying is the words of the gospel take people who are sick, people who are debilitated, people who are, who are captured by sin, and the gospel words has the power to make them healthy and to make them whole, to restore their life, save their life, and change their life. This is why you guard these words. He says also, follow the pattern for these words. The pattern means an outline. It really means a sketch or a blueprint. Paul gave the gospel message outline or the gospel message blueprint to Timothy. It was Timothy's job to stick to the blueprint and to follow the blueprint. He's not allowed to change the gospel blueprints. He's not allowed to add to the gospel. He's not allowed to remodel the gospel. No gospel creativity allowed. Because if you change the gospel, you remove the power of the gospel to save lives. The other thing he says along the same theme is this. Guard the good deposit. That means to protect what was put into our care for safe keeping. It's a deposit. Guard it. Keep it. I like to think of it this way. Paul is saying to Timothy, this gospel message that I just gave you, protect it like it is a national treasure. I was thinking about national treasures, about like the Declaration of Independence. Technically, I know there's multiple copies, but the sort of one official copy I learned is kept in a titanium case. It has bulletproof glass on both sides of it. 
inside that, that bulletproof glass and titanium case, it's filled with argon, which is an inert gas to keep it from decomposing. The glass has special UV protection, so UV light can, cannot, cannot get into the copy of the Declaration of Independence to cause it to phase, fade because it is protected. It is on deposits. And that's the way that Paul says to Timothy, we must protect the gospel. Protect it. Don't allow it to be changed. So let's put these pieces together and get the picture of what's going on. Whenever we share the gospel, we should expect to find supernatural opposition against the gospel, which usually ends up as opposition against us, people making fun of us, people demeaning us on social media. So what do most people do? They cave under pressure, and they start to change the gospel message to get rid of the opposition. Oh, I said Jesus is the only way. Well, he's not the only way. He's just one of, one of many ways out there. At first, if you say the only way, people are angry at you. But if you say he's one of many ways, everyone accepts you. But you remove the power of the gospel message to save lives. Well, I said that we're only saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, and God did it all, but... I know that's offensive to you, so I know that God does some of it. Maybe we'll change it to God does some of it, and I do some of it. So I get some credit in the mix. Doesn't that make you feel better? Now, as soon as you do that, you get more acceptable with people, but you also remove the power of the gospel to save people because we're actually trusting in ourselves to save ourselves instead of God to save us. Let me show you what some false, false gospels look like, and I put them down as bullet points in your outline. Anyone who says they are made right with God by something they do instead of trusting in Jesus alone is following a false gospel. Anyone who says it doesn't matter what someone believes, as long as they're just sincere, is following a false gospel. Anyone who says they can change their life by their own effort instead of by Jesus is following a false gospel. Anyone who says they are made right with God by anyone or anything besides Jesus is following a false gospel. And what does the true gospel look like? We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. We're not saved by anything we do for ourselves. Even our ability to choose Christ is only because he chose us first in eternity past. Well, you say, okay, I got the deal. We're supposed to guard the gospel message, because if we change it, then there's no power left in it. Well, why was Paul being so adamant about this to young Timothy? Well, here's where it gets interesting. Leave a legacy of faithfulness to the gospel is the point. We read verse 15. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. Let's put that map up there, Jeremy. Well, you can see where Asia is. That's the whole area there. It's a large piece of land. The capital city of Asia is the city of Ephesus, which we know that is where Paul spent three years of his life planting the church in Ephesus. Currently, that is where Timothy is, the guy he's writing to. Timothy is the head pastor in the city of Ephesus. And we also know, by the way, that there's a number of other churches that sort of run in a ring all the way through Asia. You can uh, go to the book of Revelation to find the number of them right there as you follow them through. There's churches like Philippi, Galatia, Philadelphia, a whole bunch of them are there. Now, when Paul began the church in Ephesus, there was not just a birthing of the church in Ephesus, but the gospel went all the way into Asia. Acts chapter 19, verse 10 says, All the residents of Asia heard the word of God, and many believed the word of God. But here we find everything has gone the opposite direction, hasn't it? All who are in Asia have now turned away from me. They've turned away. Why? From what we can tell, 
this massive defection from Paul happened when he was arrested and then carried off to Rome now that he is going to lose his life. People don't want to associate with Paul because they know that if Paul is losing his life, they don't want to lose their life. But here's where it's interesting. There is not just a mass defection going on from following Paul, but there's a mass defection going on on following what Paul taught about Jesus. A mass defection away from the gospel blueprints. And what's happening is people are getting creative. They're adding to the gospel. They are modifying the gospel. They're not just leaving following Paul, but they're leaving following what he says about Jesus and the only way to be saved. By the way, the ringleaders are apparently these two guys, Phygelus and Hermogenes. They are probably the leaders on the defection to leave Paul and to leave the gospel. I like to think about this for a moment. In one sense, it's a pretty good deal if you get your name mentioned in the Bible. That's pretty cool. But not if you're these guys. They leave quite a bad legacy. Because they're turning away from Paul. They're turning away from the blueprint of the gospel that he presented. And they're having all kinds of other people, all the people in Asia following them and their children and their children after them. What a horrid legacy to leave in life. So close to so many people being saved, now so many people turned away from being saved, all because they left the gospel blueprint, didn't guard the gospel blueprint. Now you may wonder, what kind of pressure do you think Timothy's under right now? Head pastor, city of Ephesus, all who are in Asia are turning away from Paul. All who are in Asia are turning away from the gospel blueprint that he has committed and given to them. Timothy is under that same pressure. Come on, you don't want to be associated with Paul. He's a bad deal. You could suffer like him. And Paul says to Timothy, please, whatever you do, be faithful to me. Be faithful to the gospel and do not turn away. Now, Paul gives the other side of the story here. Well, two of these guys are defectors. One guy is faithful. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Anisiphorus, for he often refreshed me. I was not ashamed of my chains, but when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. Onesiphorus didn't leave Paul. Onesiphorus was faithful to the gospel blueprint that Paul had shared. And I think it's pretty neat. It says, uh, by the way, he often refreshed me. What does that mean? It usually means that he had me over for dinner. He was often giving great hospitality to me. And then when Paul was arrested and Paul was taken to Rome, what did Anisiphorus do? He got on a ship and he sailed to Rome to continue to look for Paul, had to search for him a long time to eventually find him in that Mamertine dungeon, and there continued to refresh Paul and continued to be faithful to Paul. Not just faithful to him, but faithful to the gospel message itself. Now, I want to ask you this question. What kind of legacy do you want to leave behind for the gospel? Do you want to be people that are like Phygelus and Hermogenes, that give in to the cultural pressure around you, change the gospel, make it more compatible, more compelling, and less offensive, but at the end of the day, lead countless people away from Jesus? and being saved by him? Or would you like to be like Onesiphorus? Faithful to the gospel. Faithful to the end. Even if it costs great suffering, but in the end, lead many people to Jesus. Guarding the gospel to the end. By the way, two things I'd like to mention. When it comes to guarding the gospel, 
in a world that is very hostile to us, realize we do not do that on our own. God promises to help us. We're in Iowa. For the most part, we don't pay a huge price for standing up for the gospel truth of Jesus. But there's places in the world right now that if people faithfully present the gospel message, they may lose their life, they may lose their job. It's a great price, to, high price to pay. But look at these two things that we learn. When we're staying faithful, guarding the gospel, the Holy Spirit helps us to guard the gospel. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Not just that, but guard, God himself promises to guard this message. For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what, he, what has been entrusted to me, which is the gospel message itself. Here is the question we leave with today. Am I believing sharing, guarding, and willing to suffer for the true gospel message? Or am I letting the culture pressing me into believing a false one that'll never save lives and change people for eternity? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to be a church filled with people that know the gospel message and know it well that we are saved by grace alone, in faith alone, through Jesus alone. May we be a church that doesn't just know that message, but may we share it, because we know that no one can be saved in this world unless we verbally present that truth, the amazing truth of what you have done. And when we present that, help us to be willing to suffer for that gospel, knowing that some people will be drawn to you in that message, but others will be repulsed by that message, supernaturally repulsed, and they'll oppress us. May we be willing to suffer for that message and then help us to be people in our generation, in our time, who guard that gospel blueprint, who hold that gospel blueprint. May we be people who successfully stand against the pressure of culture to change it, to make it less offensive and to make it more acceptable because we know that if we change the gospel blueprint, there is no saving truth and saving of life found in anything else other than faith alone, grace alone, and Christ alone today. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at ChristToOurCulture.com. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.